Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You know what I love about this? You could never tell they were rich. It's all so classy and understated. I'll make it up to you later. Make it up to me now. Let's find a room. They must have a few. You're so bad. This is what rich, entitled people do when threatened. They conceal the ugly truths to protect themselves. The community is in shock tonight over the gruesome discovery of a fourth grade mother found bludgeoned to death. Hello and welcome back to the penultimate episode of Still Watching the Undoing. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. If you're just joining us for the first time on Still Watching, what we do on this show is that Richard and I pick one show, actually sometimes two, because we're about to double up again for a little bit, uh, shows that we are watching that we are uh, very, very fascinated by and obsessed with, and sort of break down the latest episode. This week we are talking about... The Undoing, Episode 5, Trial by Fury. Neither Richard and I have seen the next episode, so we are babes in the woods here. We have no spoilers here because we don't know what's coming. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, on that note, uh, we may not have this episode of, of Still Watching Up on our usual Sunday night after The Undoing airs on HBO because uh, we will be watching it, you know, maybe live with all of you on Sunday night. So you can look for it probably Monday, uh, the Monday after the finale airs. We'll have our last Still Watching The Undoing. And then we're also doing 
two little special uh, holiday episodes. Richard, what is the, uh, I don't know if we want to even call it a guilty pleasure. No, what do you want to call it? What is the show that we're going to like spend two episodes talking about uh, over the holidays? Well, I mean, we can't actually take airplanes right now, or we can, but we're not. <laughs> we're not. So instead, we're going to, you know, as as often in life, I find myself, if I can't do something, I imagine, but what if Kelly Cuoco could? Oh. And so we are going to be watching The Flight Attendant, uh, her new thriller for HBO Max, which uh, is, they're kind of dumping the episodes in two parts, like, I think it's three episodes one week and then three, like, later, so... We'll just kind of cover three episodes in one of our episodes and then do the second half later. Right. So they're dumping them on Thanksgiving. So, uh, you know, if you if you cannot go see your family, which for in some cases is a safe and wise choice this Thanksgiving, um, you know, spend Turkey Day with Kaylee Cuoco. And, uh, oh, I, I never pronounce his name correctly, but it's like Michelle Kuzman, who played Dario mm-hmm. on Game of Thrones. Uh, he'll Michael be around. Hotman, as some of my yeah. friends call him. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, uh, Rosie Perez will be there. You'll have a great time, I promise. So, um, Jared I... Nolan Funk. <laughs> I got actively mad when I ran out of flight attendant screeners. Uh, I was like, no, I, I want more. Um, so, so this is like, just like a really fun, uh, light, uh, murdery, sexy globe trotting show that I think you'll really enjoy. And, and, and I think we'll have fun talking about like what Kaylee Cuoco is doing with her post Big Bang Theory, uh, career. Because between this and the Harley Quinn animated show, I'm just like sort of fascinated by her choices um and then uh anthony bresican and i will do a couple episodes about the mandalorian uh we're gonna do one after the thanksgiving uh week episode airs and then we'll do one for the finale and that's kind of it for still watching for the rest of the year so we're gonna like wrap up this murder case with hugh grant and nicole kidman we're gonna you know, skip around the globe with Kaylee Cuoco and then we're going to uh, check in with Baby Yoda a couple times and then we're going to call it a year. So uh, thank you all so much. For... <laughs> May we never remember this year. <laughs> and then yeah, yeah, and we'll collectively forget 2020 ever happened. Um, I don't know what our 2021 show uh, kicking off will be, uh, but we will maybe have some updates for you on that before the end of the year. Um, and I just want to thank you all for, for following us from show to show because sometimes, you know, they're not always of the same uh, genre or tone. And you guys are just sort of like, whatever Richard and Joanna are watching, sure, I'll watch with them. So that's really sweet. Thank you guys for that. Uh, on that note, we have a couple emails uh, to get through. Uh, you can always email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Uh, to let us know what you think of the latest thing that we're watching. Uh, Lauren emailed in to ask us about the opening credits of um, the show. Uh, and she was sort of asking, like, what's going on there? They don't, the tone doesn't seem to match the show as far as she's concerned. And then she's like... Um, I know the baby is a girl, but the kid in the title seems toddler age and with red hair. Is it supposed to be Grace? There's a quick flash of blood, but other than that, it's a very sunny, happy theme all around this kid. It just doesn't fit with the tone of New York, drama, murder, etc. Is this deliberate? I mean, is the contrast on purpose trying to tell us something? I may be some- making something out of nothing. It just strikes me as extremely odd. I'll give you my interpretation and then I'll ask Richard what he thinks. Like, my 
take on this. First of all, we should say if we haven't already, which I think we have, that that's Nicole Kidman singing the opening number, Dream a Little Dream of Me, um, or just Dream a Little Dream, I think is what it's called. And then uh, I, yes, have interpreted that a child is supposed to be young Grace. And I think the point is like, Grace before the events of this uh, show was quite childlike, uh, living in a sort of innocent, deluded little bubble. And I believe a bubble literally bursts in the opening credits. So, like, this is about the bursting the bubble of a childlike Grace uh, and discovering the reality, not just of her husband, but, like, last week's episode, her parents' marriage, all this sort of stuff. Uh, Richard, do you have any opening credits thoughts? <laughs> No, I mean, I, I I agree with you. I think that that's right. And I think that the, the irony there, and there is irony in the song choice and, and, yeah. the, um, and the way it's sung and who sings it, um, is that, you know, for a living, she's supposed to be this very like keen interpreter of like right. adult problems. And yet she doesn't seem to have really turned that lens in any productive or actual way on herself. And it took this, uh, horrible thing to get her to realize the many, problems and compromises in her life, uh, which seem to be ever uh, developing, especially in this episode, there are some huge reveals uh-huh. about stuff that she just didn't know or was ignoring or didn't ask enough questions about. Um, so I think, yeah, the dream is over. Rosemary Harris Skyping in with the tea. Uh, so we will get to that. Uh, Lauren also writes, I love Richard's theory. That the family is protecting grace from herself and something is going on with her mentally and she might have done it in a fugue state. I think that theory uh, is a little less strong after this episode, but, um, it, you know, I like Although, it. I like it as a possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that last shot, that last scene is like damning if it's literal, but it may, I mean, I don't know. There was a part of me that was like, it just seems so, such an obvious hiding place. Like maybe she's just projecting this. Like, I don't know. But yeah, I think that we're probably dealing with more literal things than uh, mental, I think at this point. Um, all right. So this email comes from, uh, Judith and Judith dropped a little, uh, book spoiler in here. So we're not going to read that part of the email, but Judith writes, hello from Ontario. Your podcast enhanced the watching experience of serialized television productions. And I mostly listen before watching the episode you discuss. I read the Jean Hanf, uh, Correlates book. You should have known which the undoing is adapted from in advance of the series. Therefore, at the end of the second episode, Jonathan materializing at the couple seaside home came right out of the blue and was quite a surprise, a real deviation from the book. Um, but in episode three, with Jonathan being so vague about his parents, I'm beginning to see how the plot might bend back again to follow Coralis's book. And like, I'll stop there. But like the the revelation that comes from Jonathan's mother in this episode, I think, is is what Judith is alluding to there. Um Another thing I want to note, going back to the first episode, it seemed that Miguel was shown sitting alone in a room being questioned by the police. Maybe I missed something else being someone else being there with him. But if not, it would not be legal for so young a child to be in that situation without an adult to look out for him. Um, I feel like in this episode, Haley, in her cross-examination, did a good job calling out some of the like uh, police inconsistencies that we feel like we've seen uh, in this series. I wasn't sure if they were intentional. This episode seems to imply that that perhaps they were. Um, what do you think of Richard, uh, the show's trying to say about the police work around this case? Well, yeah, I mean, I think all of that initial, you know, the intensity with which they interrogated Grace and all that stuff. And maybe, you know, Miguel being um, questioned in a very uh, extra legal sense um, 
goes to this sort of devastating cross-examination uh, that uh, Jonathan's defense attorney Haley gives is that like she's saying you were so eager to do this you were that you railroaded it you railroaded this suspect you railroaded the case um, so yeah maybe all those little pieces were there so we could more fully feel the fact that like uh, these detectives were uh, acting in haste and not doing a thorough job uh, as they should have. Excellent, yeah. Um, I, I, you know, this is a David E. Kelly show. And, uh, you know, I, I've been sort of eager for us to get to the more courtroom heavy scenes. Uh, I like, so I, did, <laughs> we talked about Perry Mason on this podcast before, not the, uh, not the recent HBO Perry Mason, but the OG Raymond Burr Perry Mason. Did you watch Perry Mason at all, Richard, growing up? Not growing up. No, not at all. I, I mean, I've seen the new one, but, um, no. So it was, I was kind of brand new to me, weirdly. Yeah. So like I, uh, that was, it was like a show that was in massive syndication. It was on like, you know, at like seven in the morning or whatever. And I used to sometimes watch it like before school with my mom. And, uh, and it was like, the, this is the Perry Mason tactic, right? Which is you, you, an episode of Perry Mason always unfurls like this. Perry Mason is, is has to defend someone. And I don't know. I haven't actually watched the new one. So I don't know. I, my sense is that it's a major deviation. But the, the, the procedural of Perry Mason was always this, which is that he defends someone. I'm sure sometimes they were guilty, but largely they weren't. And then he has these investigators. And over the course of the episode, they investigate. They figure out who actually done it. And in like a, a you know, 11th hour stunning courtroom accusation like Raymond Burr will like spin on his heel and point into the like crowd and be like it was you or like has them on the stand and is like it was you and like gets a confession out of them right um and so Haley's kind of trying the Perry Mason tactic where she's just sort of like if I can't uh get Hugh Grant off on his own merits because he's a slippery individual uh the best I can do is try to accuse credibly accuse uh, someone else, or at least cast enough benefit of the doubt, um, elsewhere. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty convincing. I mean, not convincing, uh, because like, uh, I don't know who done it, but like, uh, Lily Rabe's character, Sylvia, I'm pretty sure it was Jonathan, (laughs) but, um, but you know, Haley's working pretty hard to, uh, to to cast the blame about which you know is a well yeah because i feel like i mean i've never been on a, a jury um but i know people who have and they you know who've talked about it to varying you know degrees of, of like uh detail um but i just think that thing that you know and 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 this is said in the episode like it's just reasonable you know it the, the only thing that they have to meet is reasonable doubt or whatever you know and i i know that that is like the technicality of the law but like a jury is just people and like I feel like reasonable doubt becomes a much tougher thing to implant in a jury's mind than it maybe technically legally should be. Um, and then of, of course that depends on the jury. So re- I really, what it, what it's showing is that Haley has to really establish like so many different vectors that this investigation yeah. could have gone in and it didn't um, kind of well past what might, um, you know, technically exonerate her client. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it was interesting. I, I I had been sort of dreading the court scenes because someone who had seen all the episodes told me that, that, that that's when the show kind of slowed down. Um, I didn't find that. I think that, uh, you know, it was so it was well acted. And uh, even if a bunch of the American accents really just went off the 
off the rails <laughs> in some of those scenes. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was trying to think if I was on that jury, like, would I be compelled to uh, to say, well, I mean, you know, there's enough there's enough reasonable doubt that he didn't do it. I I, I think I probably would have been after after what I, we saw. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, especially with the like shock reveal of. <laughs> grace right around the corner um you know we've already been through that as an audience but like if you're a jury member you're like i'm sorry the wife was a block away like what's happening here um we're doing this is actually not our usually usually we like talk about the emails then we talk about the episode we're kind of doing both which is fine um but i do want to mention before people uh get too deep into all this we have two interviews this week uh we've got noah Joop uh here who plays henry fraser uh here to talk about of course that big moment at the end of the episode and then we've got hugh grant uh here to talk about the like uh i killed my sister uh reveal that happens in this episode and, and other things so uh you know stay tuned i just I just want folks to know that those are coming. But to your point, Richard, about casting blame around, we've got this email from Eden who says, uh, who writes in about uh, the art of it all in The Undoing. She says, uh, Grace's father spends a lot of free time in the museum slash art gallery. Hashtag forever in an art gallery, as Joanna said on last week's pod. From the shots we see of Franklin's apartment, he appears to be a man of very fine taste and has the wealth to purchase art or collect art. Frankly, pun intended, Franklin likes his art. Elena is or Elena is or was an artist. It seems we're being reminded of her artistry a lot in the show. She paints the beautifully creepy portrait of Grace. She was murdered in her studio, etc. Is there any correlation between Franklin's love interest with art, uh, love slash interest with art, and and Elena's profession as an artist? Could this be another clue that Franklin was involved in Elena's death, or is this just a cinematic contrast between the two classes, wealthy and poor, and how the wealthy and the poor are shown around the art world? There seems to be a lot of attention to the quote unquote arts in the show. Also, let's not forget all that talk about the Hockney painting in episode one. Am I reading too much into this? LOL. Love the pod, Eden. So, um, yeah, this idea. I like I kind of like that idea of like uh, Elena as a creator and Franklin as a consumer uh, or or patron, if you want to be more um, lenient of art. Uh, what do you think, Richard? Well, yeah, I mean, because I think, you know, the reference to the Hockneys in the first episode, like it, it, it's just another form of consumption and there's probably not really much thought put to who's creating it and what kind of energy that takes and what kind of worldview that takes, you know, um, like these people, you know, the Franklins of the world tend to assume that there is a finite amount of things and they want as many of them as they can have. Whereas other people are like, no, you can just, you know invent something and um yeah and i think that you know we, we we went back to that that painting in this episode like with you know when talking about you know it being used as her art studio but also her kind of you know um place to have trysts or whatever but like you know with their close-ups on the paintbrushes and grace kind of remembering that there was this like creative passion there uh and it's one that people in her circle certainly don't seem connected to except in a transactional sense um Emma wrote in with like a really comprehensive breakdown of like all her theories. We're not going to get into all of them necessarily, but I did want to bring up uh, a couple things. First is her uh, assessment of the Henry question, which 
takes a turn in this episode. Uh, she writes, definitely with you on the Henry train. Interesting, the scene where he bumped into um, Elna's son this week. What was that about? The slack jawness of Elna's son could be more about more than simply being confronted with his mother's suspected killer son. The I'm sorry, is there more to it? Uh, but then she writes, now Sylvia... After episode four and listening to your interview with Lily Rabe, I am convinced she is the quote unquote one other that Jonathan slept with as discussed between him and his powerful attorney. I particularly share the lawyer's exasperation with Jonathan. However, as she is the family lawyer with a relationship with Franklin, my question is what other muck has she been involved with slash thrown on his behalf over the years? Uh, So Sylvia as potentially having had an affair with Jonathan. Your mm-hmm. thoughts, Richard? Well, I mean, I think we've mentioned this in a couple episodes now, but like the story does seem to kind of take time to f- pause and have a little sit down with Sylvia, you know? And yeah. like in this episode, we, she has kind of two crucial scenes on the phone. And in one of them, she's like, so you're saying that his mother basically confirmed or seem to suggest that so weird. he's a sociopath and she, she looks kind of stricken and you're kind of like, does that, is that her realizing, Oh my God, I slept with a sociopath yeah. <laughs> again, not another one. Um, yeah. also like, you know, Sylvia has a kid, right. And like, you know, not to say that like working moms always have to be home, like when their kids asleep, but like, let me, let me think about the time difference. If Rosemary Harris, uh, Jonathan's mom, we can assume she's in England, called at four o'clock in the morning england time that's at least 8 p.m okay it's not that bad it's 8 p.m mm. and then like a little after that no uh, it's it's later it's uh isn't it's, it eight what, hours no no for you maybe for, for oh, new york New York. yeah it's five Duh. so so oh, okay it, it would it would be a late night 11 o'clock at night yeah. right okay sorry uh yes i was doing california math okay 11 o'clock at night uh and then she calls sylvia and sylvia's at her office uh, you know, I mean, I, I lean in, I guess, but I was just sort of like, what is she doing there at her office? Um, yeah. yeah. And then she gives another little wave to the prosecutor, uh, which I still have questions about. So yeah, Sylvia, keeping my eye on you. I don't think she's a murderer, but I don't, I don't know what's going on there. feels like something. Um, Cause it, it couldn't have just been like, exposition we we got it we got it from the call we didn't need the like uh, to have it underlined by sylvia to be like what he's a sociopath you say like we didn't need that as an audience to understand what we just watched so yeah there has to be something there about sylvia processing that information i agree with you so yeah everything on this show feels intentional you know um and it might not all come to bear at the end you know by by the finale but like I think, we, you know, we should pay attention to every, like, cue the show is perhaps giving us. Okay. I want to talk to you about Henry now. Uh, full disclosure. Jupe, there it is. <laughs> full Sorry, disclosure. I've been saving that. <laughs> full disclosure, I haven't talked uh, to Noah Jupe yet, so I don't know what he's going to talk to me about or say about uh, this big moment. But my feeling is, like, I was with you, Richard. I was like, oh, it was the kid. It was the kid. But then we get this reveal in the penultimate episode, and I'm like, oh, it's not the kid. That's what I think. Like, I think if you get this moment as a cliffhanger at the end of this episode, what it what it makes me think is that um, that he's he knows that his father did it, and he's hiding the weapon for his father. That's what I think. What do you think? 
I think that the last episode is them covering it up for him. Oh. I, I, I think the last episode is going to be Jonathan maybe to prove, you know, maybe proving he's not a sociopath taking the fall for his kid. Oh. Um, and Grace being complicit in that and then having to, like, deal uh, very uneasily with the fact that, like, uh, here this kid is in her house now, you know. Um, and I think that, you know, with a concern toward inherited, you know, sort of mental traits and mm-hmm. things like that, um, you know, I, I think this episode opens with Henry watching another video, especially the one of the father saying, you know, his father saying, I, th- I have an idea who did it, which clearly is not going to be his son. But like, um, and then we have that the, the scene where they're having lunch and he's like, so you'll never cheat again, right? Like, so now you can get back together. And it's like that kid got rid of the thing that or the person that he it's was like- <laughs> standing in the way of his perfect family, you know, it's like the parent trap, but with murder, <laughs> murder most foul. Yes. <laughs> Um, I see, I see it. I see the argument. Um, and, and, and yeah, this episode lays it on thick. Like if you watch it again, you know, I've watched it twice now. If you watch it, knowing what happens at the end of this episode, like in almost every scene, like the focus that he's in, like it's just, the camera is just constantly going to a Joop reaction, to a Henry reaction, to like what's going on. And it's just sort of like guilt and anxiety. And that could be, oh no, I did it. And someone's going to find out or it could be, oh, no, I have a I have the murder weapon <laughs> in my closet that I'm hiding from my father. Uh, I don't I like I like I, I like your version better because honestly, I think it's pretty boring if Jonathan did it. I think it's, you know, and, and maybe I'll be proven wrong by the way that it's executed in the finale. But like if Jonathan did it, uh, you know, our main suspect from the start that's kind of boring. If it's if if they mix it up, uh, I think that's more interesting. But then I was thinking about it, and I was like, "Well, is that a little too close to like Sharp Objects, where we have spoilers for Sharp Objects, uh, a kid killer and a parent taking the fall for them?" You know. Yeah, but these. I mean, I, but those things were written in vacuums, like you know, I, I like separate of each other. You know, True. Um, I I think that also we should remember that this show opens with a school fundraiser and people talking about the kids and raising money to support these kids and to help these kids. And as the episodes have worn on, we see these kids, Miguel and Henry being ignored or being overlooked. And uh, I think that like maybe one of the kind of sinister conclusions of this show is like you raise these kids Either way, you can be the most active parent or the most passive parent. You are still doing something to shape them. And uh, here is the potential result of that, you know. Um, And I think that that puts the scene where Henry tries to shake Miguel's hand at school in a new in a creepy new light, which is him maybe in some ways like trying to make things right or to prove his goodness to this kid whose mother he killed, you know, Um (laughs) So I don't know. I I think I think that like the the framing that this is two families whose kids go to the same school mm. uh is kind of fundamental to the series. And so it would make sense to me that in the end it does become about the kids or at least one of the kids. Yeah, I mean I I I think that's a, a much more interesting show 
Um, and, and hopefully that's what we're going to get in the finale. I'm still pretty convinced that it's just going to like swing back to Jonathan and like, you know, we have this cliffhanger where Grace is like, oh my God, is my kid a sociopath? And then we find out that, uh, you know, cause Henry's been so anxious. You, you can, you could chalk Henry's anxiety up to two things. One, he, he eliminated, um, Elena in order to, you know, save his parents' marriage, uh, in his own eyes or whatever. Um, or two, he knows his dad is a killer and he's anxious to find a way that that is still okay. So I don't know. I, either way, it's a lot. It's a lot on on, on where would he have Henry gotten the hammer? Here. You know, I mean, or, or isn't Jonathan Jonathan hid it in his kid's violin case? Or Jonathan stashed it somewhere and he found it? Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. Where's I he don't... keeping his violin? Then we've seen him play. His I know. <laughs> I was actually looking at that like uh, when we were watching and he was playing the violin. I was like, "Where are you storing that thing, kid? In I know it's in your <laughs> his hammer case." Um. All right. Well, let's hear from uh, from Noah Jupe himself uh, about what he thinks about old old Henry Fraser here. Well, so Noah, the first thing that I ever saw you in was The Night Manager. Uh, so that's obviously where you met uh, Susanna Beer. But I'm I'm curious for this project, did you have to go through an audition process at all, or did she just call you, text you, DM you, and say, Noah? Come do an HBO series with me. I mean, um, <laughs> ever since we worked on The Night Manager, um, she always said to me while we were working together, she was like, we need to work on something else together. Um, and it's kind of been like a running thing for years now that we had to do something together again. Um, and then I worked with Celia Costas on, the, on A Quiet Place, and she um, produced... The undoing so um that so she kind of recommended me and then Susanna knew me and um like it was just like an accumulation of things that kind of you know this job was a perfect fit for me at that time so yeah what do you remember I mean you were you were so young when you did the night manager but what do you remember about working with Susanna on the night manager um I mean it it it's a weird, it's a weird memory it's quite blurry and and faded but I remember having such a great time I remember her being so kind and 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 being you know making me feel really safe on set and you know uh treating me like an actor not a kid and um and you know just really explaining everything to me so that I was confident to explore the scenes and you know I I loved working with her on on the night manager you know she speaking to the other you know your fellow actors on the show they describe her process as unusual um did you realize that at the time or was it only later when you worked with more filmmakers that you looked back and thought huh this was that was something different that I did with her at the time I mean every every filmmaker has a different different way of directing um I feel like Susanna's is extremely efficient and um I feel like she she loves to talk. She loves communicating the sorts of rehearsals. She lo- you know, she she makes it clear that it's okay to ask questions and um so there's lots of conversation on sets. Um and I think for me that works really well with kind of my way of acting. So m- me and her together went went very well. Um yeah, I feel like 
she's 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 got this this way of directing that um is very calm and relaxed um but she knows exactly what she wants and she can tell you instantly where she wants you to be and all that but it's not controlling she allows you to have the freedom to explore it yourself um so yeah it's, it's a very interesting but very efficient way of directing i think I know you, you already said uh, your your memories of the night manager are a little blurry and understandably so, but I'm wondering, you know, if you think about it, how how has your process changed since uh, working on that with her uh, to what you do to prepare for a role now? I mean, my process is constantly changing. You know, if you, you have to, each job comes with a different character with a different world. So you have to, you know, um, you know as an actor you're almost a chameleon to whatever you're you're playing or the time period that you're exploring so I approach every role differently um I mean I'm it's constantly changing I'm constantly learning and I don't think I'll ever stop given that both Hugh and Nicole sort of mentioned to me that they found Susanna's process uh, like not unusual in a bad way just sort of you know like uh you know took them by surprise in certain ways did you have any conversations with them where you were just you know able to be like oh well you know this is just how she is this is how it always is I know since I'm the veteran here having worked with her before well um I mean you know I made it uh, on the first day of set I made it clear uh I went up to Hugh and I made it clear that you know he wasn't right for the role and that he was um and that he didn't fit the character at all but it was his <laughs> choice and so I was gonna accept that and so in working with with folks like like Hugh Grant Nicole Gitman Donald Sutherland like is there anything you know given that you are constantly refining and and changing your process is there anything that you learn from observing how they work um that you wanted to sort of add to your your toolkit as a performer um I mean I learned I learned so much from all of them but Say off the top of my head, something that I learned from Hugh was was intimacy and the the inner life of your performance. You know, he doesn't do much, but it's all inside of him. It's and you can just see it through his eyes. And just watching him work really helped me explore that in myself. Um, and so that was something I learned from him. From Nicole, I learned consistency. I mean, she she knocks out of the park every single take, take after take. So, you know, watching her, seeing her, how professional she is, made me, you know, inspired to to be that way as well. And I mean, um, Donald is he, he? I could just learn everything from him. He is the Yoda of the the, <laughs> um, the industry. So, I mean, I I can't even begin to say what I've learned from him. So I'm curious. So you've just mentioned a British actor, an Australian actress, a Canadian actor. Um, why do you think there are so few American actors in this New York uh, based show? Um, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I think uh, it's, it's more about kind of the individual characters themselves. I mean, um, I guess it's just whoever's right for the role. And if they're, you know, not from America or if they are, it doesn't really matter. It's about who's, you know, right for the part. And um, so I think, you know, it was just a coincidence that all of these, these characters 
uh, and these actors were chosen because they were the best of the best, you know? Absolutely. And so part of the fun of the show as we're watching it, right, is, uh, you know, Susanna mentioned to me that she she really wanted this to be a, a whodunit. And we are supposed to be questioning and doubting every character as we go along. Um, how do you approach that aspect of your character? Like, how do you see the potential for, for murder into into Henry when we get this big, you know, moment at the end of this episode? We have to have seen a potential path for him to possibly be a suspect here? Um, I mean, for me, exploring that and and having the chance to kind of be the biggest twist of the series so far was so exciting. And um, uh, I guess, you know, in subconsciously, people kind of always rule out children from the start of, of being a suspect because they're innocent, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I liked the fact that, that, there now was a chance that he could be a suspect and he has a dark side to him and he holds secrets and he's not just a innocent bystander he has his own part to play in this whole thing um and so I was I was really intrigued by that and intrigued by the fact that uh David E. Kelly decided to to put him into the story you know in a in a in a big way um so yeah do you are you personally a fan of thrillers and and whodunits? I I am, you know. I do I do love a good murder mystery. What do you think is the appeal for for audiences in a story like that? Um I mean, it just it, you can see it kind of everywhere with the undoing now is I get texts from people being like, I think it's this person. I think it's <laughs> they did it this way that I get school. I get people being like, I'll pay you to, to tell me who did it. <laughs> all the, like all of that stuff and the constant, you know, cause usually in movies, the audience kind of knows more than the characters, but in these type of stories, the, the characters know more than the audience. And I think that's really kind of shocking uh, to to the audience and and hooks them even more because they want to know everything and they want to, you know, see, see all. So, um, and I also think just, you know, twists are the ultimate um, entertainment in movies. Um, So, and these styles of, of series and movies are full of twists. Is there, um, would you categorize uh, this genre or even this show specifically as a guilty pleasure, do you think there's something deeper at play here? Oh, much deeper, especially in the sense of the undoing. I, I feel like, yes, it's it's going off the kind of formula of a murder mystery, but it's much more than that. It's it's uh, it's more about you know the family dynamic, the 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 trust, the the huge topic of trust, and how that how breaking that trust can you know, crumble a, a society or, you know, a family. And um, and I think, yeah, that although there is lots of fun twists and turns, there's a, a lot deeper message under it all. Um, so, so, yeah. 
Uh, all right, so let's let's get to this one at the end of this episode. Um, as you say, you're involved in in the biggest twist of of the season so far. It's obviously meant to be. You know, this is a cliffhanger. This is a tease for what's to come. Uh, yeah. You know, we're we're meant to walk out of this episode not knowing uh, one way or another, but but starting to like cook our little theories. So as for you as a performer. Um, you know, you're given one real facial expression to sort of, uh, you know, convey something. So, so what, what are you hoping to convey in this brief reaction here? Um, I'm hoping to convey a lot of things. I mean, it's the shock, the, the guilt that, that I've been hiding something, the, the fear of, you know, what my mom's going to do. Um, but also the sense of um, a kind of different side of of Henry and how he's, you know, not as what everyone's thought of him as. And he's got secrets and he, he's got a dark side. And, and then it highlights even more this kind of element within the story of nothing is as it seems. No, you can't trust anyone in this this whole you know, transaction, uh, this whole lie, this whole big lie. So um, I think that's that was really interesting to play with. And um, yeah. I have one last question for you that I did not send over in advance. It's not an I, I gotcha question, but you were also free not to answer. It's just something my co-host brought up that he wanted me to ask you. Um, so feel free to say no, thank you. Um, but he, his question is, Where's Henry been keeping his violin if the hammer's been in the violin? He's like, we saw Henry play the violin. Where has he been storing it? That is a very, very good question. And I actually thought that to myself when I was on set. Um, and I mean, me and um, I, I kind of work with the, the, the props people to kind of explore the different possibilities. And I mean, from the time Henry gets back from um, the beach house, there's kind of no point in which he moves around more than that. And uh, personally for me, I've had guitars, I've had pianos, you know, I don't pack them up after I've used them, I leave them out. So for me, I feel like, you know, Henry's just stuck in this one room with the violin. Um, and uh, so when he's at home, he just kind of has it out and he just leaves it out. But when he takes it to school, um, I reckon he'll have another another hiding spot for the the hammer or um it's yeah it is very interesting i we, we there was a spot in the in the cupboard um in in the room that we found for the hammer and it was like this like tiny little thing so i think he would have put it there when he's not you know using the violin kit but I, ultimately i feel like for Henry, he's got this 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 thing that that will mess up everything, right? He doesn't want to hide it somewhere in his closet. You know, he he wants it to be on him at all times, so that he knows exactly where it is, and he knows that he's not going to get found out. So that's the reason for the violin case, it being in the violin case. But you know, obviously, as you said, he has to kind of let it go sometimes. But yeah, so it's the whole yeah. it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing to try and hide this huge secret. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thanks for the chat. And, uh, and um, we look forward to figuring out exactly what all is going on with the finale. Yes. Um, thank you. No worries. Thank you. 
I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Chris Murphy. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast, a weekly television podcast that obsesses over all things TV. Chris, Hillary, and I are at your service to recap and analyze the best that's out there and what you should be watching. Plus, we're talking to the stars and showrunners about how exactly it all got made. New episodes of Still Watching drop weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, all right. Well, then, I mean, we should also talk about this other big reveal, right? Which is that, um, in the words of Dr. Jonathan Frazier, I killed the family sister. Um, Such a weird bit of weird phrasing. thing yeah. to say. Um, right. So we find out that it was not, in fact, uh, the family dog that died. It was his sister, uh, Katie the kitten, um, that, uh, died at four years old, um, we hear we we hear from Jonathan's mother. Uh, it seems that Jonathan has been trying to like keep his his folks and Grace separate since their wedding, Jeepers. And uh, you know his mom is a is a real piece of work. Uh, you know whether or not Jonathan himself is a piece of work. His mom uh, doing a grammar correction at four in the morning uh, over Skype is is you know, is telling of, of mm-hmm. who, who the kind of person she is. Uh, and, and according to her, at least, despite the tears that we saw from Jonathan in the, in the restaurant, um, he, he expressed no remorse over the death of his sister, his young sister. Uh, what, what are you thinking here, Richard? Well, I mean, if we're going the sociopath route with him, like he, he needed that information out when he needed it, when he needed further sympathy, you know, and further understanding from, from grace. And, uh, there was something really calculated about that. Um, you know, and he told a version of the story and it's one that I guess by the bare facts was reflected in his mother's recounting of it, but hers was very brief, you know? Um, and so maybe there was more, I mean, maybe I don't think I'm, I'm not suggesting that like he like pushed his sister in front of a car or anything like that. But like, who knows exactly what happened? But like, I think that the, his choice to divulge that information could have just been spontaneous because he's like, Oh my God, this fucking dog lie of all, you know, out of all the other lies, like I forgot about that line. I just have to tell the truth about this now in this restaurant (laughs) entryway. (laughs) Um, Or like I said, it was, it was done, you know, sort of, sneakily and with you know with with uh manipulative intent um either way uh it speaks even further to the sham that was this marriage like if you don't know something that profound about your partner and their past like what the hell i mean do you even know them you know right Mm -hmm. um and i think that like going back to our discussion of like the opening credits like more the the further this episode or this show goes on, the more it makes Grace look like a willful fool, you know. Right. And um and and there's a certain degree of um horror in that and embarrassment in that. Um and I think that the way that she keeps turning to Sylvia for help and for advice might be further compounded when she finds out, up oh, more fool me, the person I've been going to for this right. is also a part of this deception. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, uh, it's, that's sort of the whole point of, 
um, the book, as far as I understand it, I haven't read it, but the whole, you know, like as, as we've discussed in this podcast, the book and the original concept for the show is not a whodunit. It's a, we know whodunit and how does, and then Grace spending the rest of the story grappling with what that means for her own delusions, her own practice, her own life. Right. And, um, you know, Susanna Beer really wanted it to be a whodunit instead. And so that, you know, the, the the story is sort of flipped on its head in that way. But you still have this uh, every episode Grace has to deal with the reality of something. How did you feel about her uh, going to uh, at least cuddle, if not like sleep with Jonathan um, in their in their home? Well, again, like, you know, she has this intense lunch where, you know, this hor- this crazy thing is revealed, but also she sees that her son is like really doing this magical thinking um, about the chances of this family's survival. Um, and I think that in a moment of weakness and loneliness and whatever, she lets herself fold back into that fantasy too. Yeah. You know, he's charming on the phone. Like maybe I will just go over. And it's like, it's this refusal to admit that something has irrevocably changed. Um, many things have, uh, and, and trying to like, you know, and I think, I don't know. I think, I think it's a pretty damning portrait of grace, this, this show, like, um, and, and, and of a kind of like adjacency to like wicked things, um, that her whole life represents and many real people's lives represent, you know, they're not, they're not the ones actively doing the bad, but they're, willingness to overlook it or look, you know, look the other way, ignore it, pretend it's not happening, um, is its own kind of bad and, uh, uh, suggests, you know, (laughs) I mean, we're all guilty of it to some extent, but it suggests sort of weak character and, and we see her being pretty weak, I think in, in going over there. Yeah. And I, it's, it is, it is understandable. It's like, oh, course, she's like, yeah. I she's like, the same. like, totally. She's like, yeah. he's, he's doing his Hugh Grant shtick on the phone. He's like, oh, you know, come over for a bowl of Frosties. You know, it's like, it's like the shit that worked on Bridget Jones, like same shit, new day, you know, sort of thing. Um, and is this not the same character? <laughs> it pretty much is. Daniel, uh, fighting in fountains and killing his sister. It's all the same. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is. It's it's relatable to like want to just turn back the clock and seek comfort in the familiar, uh, you know, your your house, your life, your husband, your history. You know, if I, you know, in in like breakup narratives or divorce narratives, I find that like backslide so relatable. Um, but but it's tough in this context when there's just like you know so much awful nonsense that we learn about Jonathan every week like the old smile and wave he gave to his son outside the school while he's like canoodling with his young lover you know it's just it's it's chilling it's 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 pretty upsetting and I think Hugh Grant's doing a great job with like like I thought that I thought the smile and wave was really really upsetting and I think um you know, and every time he gets caught in a lie and he's like, oh, yes, 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 of course, of course. Yes, yes. No more lies. Yes, yes, yes. You know, and it's just all it's all creepy, you know, in a, in a great way. Well, yeah, because he also I think 
he has an excuse for everything, an answer for everything, but he only lies to the extent that he thinks he needs to in that moment. You know, he's right. like, I'll, I'll come up with the thing if it comes up, but like, I'm going to assume I got away with this. And then, exactly. you know, and the creepy, that the way that that just adds up and adds up and adds up. Um, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's frightening. Um, but I was just thinking also about like the, the, the night, the night of, and you know, the fact that Grace was walking near the scene and, and we also, you know, in, in, in Fernando's, uh, uh, testimony, uh, you know, uh, Haley keeps hitting on this, this, you know, very wobbly alibi. Cause like it was your sleeping son, your sleeping 10 year old son is, is yeah. the, is the one thing saying you were at the house. Well, presumably Henry was sleeping or not at the house when all, when Grace is on her walk and Jonathan's doing yeah. whatever he's doing. So yeah. like who the, who the hell knows? Maybe he was, you know, like there's no, there's no one really to say that he was at home asleep, you know? Um, so again, all of these adults caught up in their things, um, and relying on their kids for certain things or, 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 or just kind of trusting that they're just doing something they're supposed to, but not really attending to it. Like, um, I think, you know, I think, I think it just says, you know, uh, I don't think that, that Henry is like a lying sort of sociopathic, his dad maybe, but, um, he has learned at least through osmosis that like, you just have to like get people to believe enough and um, that's all you need. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you're ab- absolutely right that there's just like this uh, constant shallow digging out of like, okay, what is, what is this small thing that I need to dig myself out of? Um, but, but we have not yet seen and may never see a full reckoning, you know, it, you know, if his mother's characterization of him is right, Maybe he doesn't have that cap- capability. But if her characterization of him is right, then he's like tears in the restaurant vestibule. You know, that's a performance. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, it's, you know, or 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 him saying, you know, I loved her madly about Elena. You're just sort of like, did did you do you like I believe that you were like, you know obsessed with her in some way that like possessing her meant something to you but like is it was it love i mean it, it, it from another right. character i believe it from you i don't you know so if you're madly in love with someone do you after their murder say oh she was obsessed with me she was crazy i was trying to get her you know like right like that would that's such a betrayal of that love if, if it exists yeah. you know yeah. um and yeah yeah i mean i think i think the tears were fake um I think it was opportunism and, 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 uh, you know, he was just trying to read the moment and be like, what's going to work for me best here. Yeah. Um, but you know, here he is sort of using a violent act to further bring, uh, no, not, not an intentional act necessarily, but like to further, you know, bring him closer to his estranged wife, uh, which could suggest that Henry also, you know, employed a violent act more directly to bring his family together again. We got an email from someone uh, who who wanted to sort of question uh, a, a bell that I keep ringing, which is this idea that like the undoing is doing something intentional around uh, race. Um, and and they wrote in to to point out that uh, the actress who's playing Elena um, is Italian, like European. So like that it's that it's inaccurate to call Elena <clears throat> like a woman of color. Um, and they did change. The you know her her last name is Alves, but that's her husband's last name. Um, and they did change the name of Elena, 
uh, I think it's like Magdala or something like that. It's, it's something different in the book. Um, and so maybe they changed it to something more Italian or something like that. But like, even that aside, like whether or not that is an Italian actress playing, uh, you know, a Latina or Hispanic woman, or that character is supposed to be Italian. Um, the fact that you have this courtroom case centered on this extremely white family and like the people taking the stand in this episode are like, you know, two Latino men, you know, examined by a black woman. I still think that like there is, I don't, it's not, I don't think it's the show's main purpose. And I don't think the show is like trying to like be, be the end all be all like commentary on like race and class and privilege. I just, I, I, you can't convince me it's not an element of what we're watching here, you know? So, no, I think certainly it is. And, um, you know, it's horribly cynical and it's horribly, um, you know, in, in, in an indictment of like how our justice system doesn't work. <laughs> but like there probably is if you're a high powered, you know, unscrupulous defense attorney, there probably is an effective tactic to take with a jury that's like. Well, I mean, is this guy really credible? Is this detective, you know, like, look, you know, um, I, I, I hate that that's potentially a reality, but like, right. yeah, I think that, I think that's definitely in there. It's like, you really think this upstanding <clears throat> white doctor did this, but like, right. here's this other, you know, here's this guy, you know, who, yeah, who's like, exactly. clearly has rage in him, you know, right. um, that's, yeah. that's definitely there. There's dog whistling happening there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Is there anything else, uh, you want to say about this episode? Did I already say jupe? There it is. Yeah. (laughs) You might've said it. Um, let's go to my conversation with Hugh Grant. And I just want to let you guys know this is, this is, uh, have you ever chatted with Hugh Grant before? Oh, just that one crazy night, but no. Sure, sure, sure. Um, totally delightful person. This is, we're in a weird era of like, uh, media and publicity where, uh, you know, interviews are conducted over Zoom, right? Um, so he's like set up in his beautiful. So usually, actually, I talk to people on the phone, um, but lately I've been having to do like video calls with people because that's like how everything's set up now. Um, so I don't often have the like even virtual uh, experience of doing like a hotel, a proper hotel junket mm. uh, interview. <laughs> But I did. My favorite. Fifteen minutes. They're bored and tired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was. He was. He was super lovely. But like, um, it just gave me like Notting Hill horse and hound. Uh, I just had a horse and hound moment. Uh, from Notting Hill. So I just want you guys all, to all know that that was what I was uh trying not to get distracted by when I was talking to Hugh Grant, who was who was uh very lovely in his like rainy London hotel room uh where he was sitting, and uh told me one of my favorite things ever, which is I had to kind of wheedle out of him what he listens to, to sort of get himself hyped up and emotional uh, before he does a scene. Uh, And he told me. So listen to him tell you now what he does. Hello. (laughs) I wanted to kick off by asking you, um, I know that you did a very English scandal with Stephen Frears, but is it accurate to say that this is sort of the longest form story you've done for television um, thus far? Uh, Yes. Since the 1980s. (laughs) Is there 
um, is there a difference, especially in a mystery like this one, in the way you slow roll out uh, revelations about a character from your acting perspective? Well, not really. I, I, I think the, the, my prep was exactly the same. Uh, but maybe, maybe you're right. You, you can just... Uh, things you want to reveal about your character can be... You can luxuriate it more. You've got a little more time. Perhaps that's true. When uh, so this interview is going to go up after um, the fifth episode, so after most of the cats are out of the bag, so it's okay. Um, I've been told it's okay to ask you some questions about this specifically. There is um, two largish bombshells dropped at the end of that episode in terms of a potential sociopathic diagnosis for your character and potentially revelation for the character who plays your son so i'm wondering was something like that with like sociopathy where the audience is supposed to wonder if indeed we've been watching a sociopath this whole time how that impacts your performance in prep well the problem is i can't answer that question really because that cat isn't yet out of the bag if i was to tell you oh i prepared as a sociopath then i let a cat out of the bag if i said i didn't need to prepare as a sociopath (laughs) then Okay, fair enough. Out of the bag, so it's very difficult for for me. I'm so sorry to be boring. No, no, no. I understand that. Um, Then, is there a way to ask the question about um, being able to calibrate a character where it's possible the audience might think it was watching a sociopath? This well, what what I what I will say is Mm -hmm. that uh, there is definitely a conflict between. (laughs) There's two beauties here. What when you're performing these kinds of things, one is your sort of actorly duty to always be true to your character and what that character would do, think, feel in any specific moment. That might not always match the second duty, which is to serve the story, because what you do in A might spoil B. Uh, And so sometimes there's a bit of tension between the director's vision of the whole story and your uh, vigilance about your character's authenticity. Can you speak to any uh, conversations you might have had with Suzanne about um, reconciling those two visions? It was a bit of back and forth, <laughs> but uh, I'm quite good at recognizing that in the end, we're there to entertain. You're trying to make an entertainment. And I, I think there's a, there's, there can sometimes be a danger that actors become a bit too precious about uh, how sacred they're responsibility is to their own craft and all that you know stuff and uh, i i think in the end we are there to serve an entertainment so that that the entertainment trumps everything then can i ask you i am i am trying to carefully ask you questions that you can answer and i don't want to put your back against the wall um when we first meet your character in the first episode is there a massive amount of charm offensive that you're trying to do um in those in the in the first section of that first episode um to you know put us at ease well, yes. with character and, yes. and uh, yeah. yes. i think the, the whole thing's only fun if right you build something up to a certain degree so that when you pull the rug from under its feet there's more of a fall and uh so yes he 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 needs to be the charming healer who cures kids cancer and loves, <laughs> loves his kid uh we need to see that but i i always hoped that while people are watching that they might think as they often do when they meet a wonderfully 
adept, skillful doctor with a wonderful bedside manner. <laughs> Hang on, you're just fractionally creepy or weird. I, I just, just a, just a fraction, just a whisper, a bat squeak. That was my aim. Or as I sometimes put this, uh, like feeling I'm wearing a very expensive cotton shirt, but hang on, is there a little bit of viscose in here? <laughs> a little too smooth. Uh, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, right. a little too easily. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, as we, I guess, I guess then I would want to ask, what is the most fun for you as a performer to play? You get to play so many different things in this uh, span of episodes between the smoothie charm and the wild desperation and you know grim maneuvering and whatever it is what's the most most enjoyable for you I'm not sure that one aspect of that is any more enjoyable than the others they're all different challenges for me traditionally as an actor mm. uh, big dark emotional scenes are have always been the things I've dreaded most particularly if it's there's not many words you know and they say oh Hugh we're just going to track in on you slowly on your face it was absolutely drives terror into my heart <laughs> uh, so that, I can tell you those those are the hardest things for me but I have got better at them over the years and I have found that uh, and now that I have children for some reason I am much better at them I'm, I have much better access to <clears throat> to emotion and uh, uh, and so in a way they're quite satisfying if you if you if you can bring off those scenes and emote i never thought i'd say such a thing then then you do go home and your beer tastes quite good <laughs> uh the the added flavor of success of a day's work excellent um in terms of okay so since we can't let all cats out of the bag i don't even know what cats are left in the bag um but, you know, there's this uh, moment of, of doubt and wonder about um, the Henry character, your son, played by Noah Jupe, um, which made me think back through your various interactions with him throughout the season. You kept saying stuff like, um, or your character kept saying things like, he needs me, he needs to interact with me, he needs me. And I took that initially as, you know, selfish, self-aggrandizing on, on behalf of your character. But is it your interpretation that, there's something else at play there in terms of what your character recognizes potentially in his son. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I love that interpretation. Okay. I, and, um, <laughs> I, I just can't answer you. I, I, I could ask you a question in return. I could say, sure. okay, you've watched five. Yes. Who do you think did it? Um, I've, I honestly, you know, I vacillated back and forth, uh, through a few different people but I had my eye on the kid for a while mostly because I know Noah Jupe to be a really good performer and I feel like you cast Noah Jupe to do something really really meaty so that was that was what informed my speculation we had fun with this while we were shooting because during the courtroom sequence which took I don't know two weeks to, to shoot mm-hmm. every day there was another character on the stand and at the end of the day the first AD used to ask all the extras who'd, who'd never read the script, but who were there every day. Mm. Okay, who do you think did it? And they had a different answer every single day. So, yeah. Uh, well done, David Kelly. It's true. I had my BDI and Donald Sutherland for a little while, but yeah, I was like, I don't know if, uh, if an, uh, hefting that hammer is, is within his skill set. So we'll see. Um, 
yeah, it, it's, 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 it's fun and twisty. What, what do you think for you as a viewer? Um, I guess I'll ask, is there an, uh, an, a special appeal to one of these juicy, twisty murder mysteries? Is this the kind of thing you enjoy watching as a viewer? Uh, I think I would, I think I probably would enjoy it. I don't know why exactly, but I've ended up watching almost no television. Uh, when, when during TV's golden era, now, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I very occasionally watch some tennis, and that's about it. Partly it's because I am so bad with technology, or technology hates me. I I turn on the TV, and I don't know the Wi-Fi doesn't work ever. <laughs> so that's my issue. But I'm sure I would enjoy it. I like films, and I like uh, filmy films. That come from a sort of uh, <coughs> cinematic tradition, and part of the appeal of this was Susanna Beer because she's a very filmy filmmaker, and she really is. here, in my opinion, has has made a six-hour film, and is using all kinds of uh, cinematic tricks to tell the story simultaneously with the David Kelly script, but they're not exactly the, the two things. Uh, run together but are, are not telling exactly the same story it's very clever stuff reminded me a bit of when they brought in Roman Polanski to direct Rosemary's Baby and you've got a, a brilliantly written Hollywood script and then you bring in this weird Polish twisted director and the combination is quite interesting <coughs> what um no it's okay what what have you identified as some of the filmy film uh, techniques that Susanna is is executing in in this series. Well, one of her signatures, if you look back through her Danish films as well, is um, sudden weird uh, super close ups on things. Mm-hmm. That in the middle of a scene, you'll suddenly see uh, Edgar's forearm that Nicole may have noticed because it's quite a sexy forearm sure. in the middle of her being interrogated. And uh, that's all quite brilliant stuff. And the editing, she she, she was always saying to production, I need more shots of Grace walking in the streets. And everyone was saying, oh, you've got lots of that. She (laughs) wanted more. And if you you look at the way it's all put together and just shots of bare trees looking ominous in the park, it's all creating a mood and telling us, suggesting that what you're seeing in the story there may, there may be more to it than that. It's creating mood and danger and a sense of threat and a sort of sense of lurking evil. Um, as a performer on the other side of that camera, um, you know, what is that experience like? Is there ever a moment where she pushes in on your ear and you're sort of like, mine is not the reason why, mine is just to believe my director has a reason for doing an abrupt close-up on me for some artistic reason? Does that question make sense? What did you just say about my ear? If she pushed in on your ear, if she, oh, I, right. just, I just isolated a, a body part. Well, I, I, there was a certain amount of that. There was a, a very strange lens called the lens baby. You go, oh, now the lens baby shot. And it was a weird looking lens stuck on a weird looking camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I knew what she was up to. I'd seen her Danish stuff. Yeah. You, have you seen her Danish film? Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. She's yeah. a master. Yeah. yeah. Um, something that I think is very interesting that sort of percolating in the background of this story via mostly overheard news clips is um, this idea of 
not just any kind of privilege, but white privilege as it's associated with your character. There's this running commentary of, oh, if he weren't, you know, a white well-to-do doctor, he wouldn't be treated this way by the judicial system. Is that something, is that running commentary something that touched your um, performance or your, or your approach at all? Uh, I know. I don't think that was my job, but there were some interesting things that I was just interested as a human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that criminal trials in America can involve the media that much is, is quite shocking to someone from Britain. You, you can't give interviews during a trial here. It would be prejudicial. Right. Uh, and equally, all the stuff about choosing jurors and how forensically scientific lawyers are about that and how they managed to somehow get hold of their Facebook data and know exactly who they are, all that's deeply creepy. And the whole <laughs> way a... Uh, a, a trial can basically be turned into a reality TV show. Absolutely. I think it was something David wanted to write about as an ex-lawyer. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about your experience working with Nicole. What I have found with a lot of geniuses, and I think she's a, it comes into that category, is that they can turn it on quite easily. So she, between takes, you can have a good joke and a just silly Aussie the humor with her and then suddenly bang she's back into deep dark drama and I think that takes a particular <clears throat> kind of talent some of us have to go away and get sweaty and emotional <laughs> do you have a specific process for getting sweaty and emotional uh, to prepare for a scene yeah I mean it's something I've been trying to do over the last five <laughs> or ten years uh, and it's certainly easier now I've got children for some reason children make me cry so they're very useful uh, and particularly missing them, actually, because when I was in New York, I really missed my children who were in London. That helped. I've also got a, a playlist on my phone uh, called Sad Music. And, and it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's useful. There's some incredibly <laughs> corny tracks on it. I mean, really shocking. Uh, I would hate anyone to ever see what I have. You don't want to shock me with a specific corny track on your playlist? I'm not sure you'd know it anyway. It was a very British thing. It was a, anyway, no, I know, I know. Suffice to say, it's pretty corny. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, and then I guess what, you know, other than um, the element of entertainment, which is something we're all desperately needing right now, given um, how grim things feel around us, um, is there anything in particular you're hoping people take away? from this show that may not be apparent on the surface of the David E. Kelly script? Uh, no, I'm not a big one for messages when it comes to <clears throat> entertainment. Mm -hmm. I think your, your, the only real duty is to provide the entertainment on the, on the, it says it will provide on the tin. And <laughs> sometimes, you know, if the craftsmanship is really good, then that's a sort of added bonus. You get to admire that as well. I mean, right. That's a different kind of thrill. Uh, but I, 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 I'm slightly anti-message. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, is, was the process of shooting this long form for the first time since the 80s with a filmy film director like Susanna Beer, uh, did that make you interested in pursuing more television? Or well, one of the things that put me off TV is the idea that, well, three things. One is 
Christ, you might get boxed into a whole series of series, or series of seasons and be lost for five years. And that was not the case with this one. It looked like it was a one-off. Mm-hmm. So that was all right. The second is I didn't fancy the idea of being directed by different directors every episode, which I gather is the norm right. with television. She directed all of them. And the third is it, it seemed to me it would be very difficult to not receive all the scripts straight away, to sign on and start shooting something, not knowing how it ends or where your character goes, which is, I gather also is quite typical of the way TV's made. Uh, and, and again, that wasn't the case here. It was all scripted and, and, and in fact shot just like a giant film. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. I will, I will leave you now and go look up all the corny, sad British songs that I can find to try to figure out uh, what your secret weapon is. And I, I appreciate your time, Hugh Grant. Thank you. Okay. Well, it, the military wives choir. Okay. I watched, I watched the, uh, the film that right. Chris Scott film. Thomas. Yeah. It, yeah. It yeah. Originally a sort of reality show. Okay. And then, and then they made a, a, a CD and there's a couple of tracks on that. Love I come this. from a military family. It breaks my heart. Well, that does it for this. Is this is the last time we will talk about the show without knowing who done it? Uh, mm-hmm. Richard is convinced he already knows. Um, so we'll juke, see. there it was. <laughs> we'll see how Juke gets out of this wacky mess he's got himself into uh, next week on Still Watching the Undoing. Richard, until then, where can folks find you? Uh, I have a late, like, midnight dinner date with Sylvia. Um, she just <laughs> doesn't have anywhere else to be. So we're going to meet up and just talk about things, you know. Um, and I will be tweeting from Rylaws uh, and reviewing things on vanityfair.com. Uh, Joanna, until the last episode of The Undoing, where can people find you? I mean, I definitely won't be killing the family sister. Um... <laughs> Katie the kitten. <laughs> um, probably I'll be like glancing angrily at the very nice waiter who's just trying to give me a fine dining experience. Um... <laughs> I did like that. He'll pour it. I, I like that, that little thing with the coat. Get, get the fuck out of here um all right so uh that's what we'll be doing i'll be on twitter at joe wrote this you can find me on vanityfair.com and we will see you next week for the conclusion of still watching the undoing I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 